We are going to be on Series 7, Study 4, today, and it's about peacemaking in the home. Whenever you think of a godly man, you think of a peacemaker, I would say uh, maybe, maybe not, probably what the world would think of, not as a peacemaker, a man would be a peacemaker, he would be, you know, a warrior, somebody that would... Maybe not make peace, but make war. Well, the Bible has something very opposite to say. Uh, there are times, as men of God, you have to take a stand. There are times you have to fight. There are times you have to do any number of things that are difficult. Being a godly man is is not something that's uh, that's that lends itself to weakness. Um, and yet, uh, the Bible says it's a, a lot more than the, the manly man uh, perspective of the world. Um, and this morning, we're going to talk about peacemaking in the home. We talked about forgiveness last week. Now, before we get started, we're going to be in Psalm 24. We're going to pray. We're going to read that and pray. But I have a list up here of your, uh, your emails. And the question that I'm to ask you is, if there's anyone in here that's not been getting the normal grace and granted emails, we send reminders, I'll send uh, videos to watch, sermon uh, links or otherwise, um, let uh, let me know and I'll give you the clipboard. Is there anybody in here that is not getting them and needs to get them? Okay. All right. So I'm going to start it right here and um, just... Uh, flip to the very last page. Put your name and your email on there, and um, we will uh, we'll make sure that you get um, get the emails and just pass it on back. Um, whenever you're whenever you're finished, there's some coffee. Um, if there's any left in the in the library over there. You're welcome to enjoy. So open your Bibles to Psalm 24 if you're not there. What comes after the funeral psalm? What do I mean by the funeral psalm? Psalm, The 23rd Psalm. It's always read at a funeral, and yet it's not a funeral psalm. Nothing wrong with reading it there. But David had, uh, had way more things in mind than just reading it whenever a loved one dies. Well, he has another song, a psalm of David in Psalm 24, and um, it's, it's a significant psalm. Let's read it and then we'll pray. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. There's Hebrew parallelism. The earth is the Lord's, the world. And all that it contains, and those who dwell in it. Saying the same thing, elaborating on what he means. For he has founded it. That's why it's his. He's the creator. He has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the uh, the rivers. And after David sets the context that God is God, he's the creator, he's the one that we should fear, that we're accountable to, then he asks the question, Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who may come before 
God's presence, who may find pleasure in in his eyes, and who may stand in his holy place. And he answers, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, and who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. Clean hands, righteous acts, the things that we do, pure heart, um, the desire of of God and the repudiation of iniquity and and uh, and then being honest about himself, about sin, about God. He's not lifted up his soul to falsehood nor sworn deceitfully. He, this man, shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. All right, there's the key that David's not saying that we have to be sinless. There's sinless perfection that is what we have to attain. We know we have to attain that. We also know that we can't attain that. So the Lord must be our salvation. He must provide for us uh, a covering. Um, This is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, even Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your head, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? It's the Lord. The Lord of hosts. He is the the king of glory. Um, Significant psalm, not only because it it, uh, talks about us, what we should be pursuing, but that last part of Psalm 24 is exactly what the priests were reciting uh, on the day of the triumphal entry. And if you uh, want more details about that, you can go back and listen to one of the Palm Sunday sermons or messages. The priests in the temple recite a different psalm each day. And on Palm Sunday, when Jesus makes his triumphal entry, presents himself as the Messiah. This is the psalm that the priests in the temple were were reciting. Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory um, may come in. Who is this King of glory? He's the Lord himself. That's a prophecy. Unbelieving priests were, were proclaiming, uh, not even knowing what they were saying. The very testimony uh, of the Lord. Let's uh, let's go to God and uh, start our start our day with with this psalm in our mind. Father, we come before you this morning. I do, and um, I thank you for these brothers. They are gifts to me, and they're gifts to one another. That uh, even as we've been learning in Ecclesiastes, we live in a cursed world, and this world is disappointments and heartaches, and uh, there's sin abounds, and not only outside of us, but the Lord inside of our own hearts. And and yet, you have not left us um, helpless. You have given us joys uh, and uh, and goodness in the midst of the curse, and brothers, uh, fellowship, friendships. Are, uh, are part of that that blessing that you have provided. So I thank you for these men this morning, Lord. I thank you that we all look to you uh, 
um, the Creator. The world and all that is in it is yours because you have made it. You are the righteous one. You are the just judge. And um, we, we are accountable to you because, because you made us. The creation is accountable to the Creator. And um, Lord, we want to be right with you. We, we want to be pleasing to you. Um, and so we strive, even as, as David writes, to, um, to do right, to, um, to be right in our own hearts, to, uh, to not believe lies or speak lies. And yet we, as we strive to do that, we know that, um, that we fall very, very short. And so we cling to Christ. He is our hope. He is our foundation. He, even this very moment as our advocate, we approach you through him. We are covered with his garment of righteousness and you are pleased with, with him. So we, we invite you to teach us today and um, we pray your blessing on all we say and do. Teach us, Father, to be peacemakers um, in our churches, in our homes, and wherever we are at. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we have a video that we're going to start with, with, uh, with Ted Tripp, and um, then we'll get into our study. I have an eye condition, and I don't see very well at night. I, the, the light and darkness, my eyes don't shift very well between, and things get blurry. I told the law of my dear life that I figured out that there are mobile blobs and stationary blobs, and the idea is to avoid them both. It doesn't make her feel very comfortable, so she said she'll drive. And we're, we're heading out in Philadelphia on an agreed-upon destination, and we get to a light where I would have turned and she'd go straight. I can't leave that alone. I say, where are you going? She says, this is the way I go. I can't leave that alone. I say, I think it's the wrong way. You know, the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. She says, that's why I didn't turn. She says, you know, Paul, I don't think it's actually a right or a wrong. I just think it's a preference. Now, that makes sense, right? I can't leave that alone. I say, what if my preference is right she says, Paul, why don't we do this? When you drive, you choose the directions. And when I drive, I'll choose the directions. That's a sensible solution. I can't leave that alone. And I say, Luella, if we were in a helicopter right now, and we were flying over Philadelphia, and we would swoop down on this location, you would know that my way is the right way. Luella looked at me and said, Paul, I don't think a helicopter is what you need right now. <laughs> Listen, I'm not surprised at the masses of dysfunctional relationships around us. I'm surprised at how many actually work. We're full of ourselves. And we need help. You see, I'm about to hurt your feelings, but it's my job. Hear what I'm about to say. If what Paul is proposing, that the DNA of sin is selfishness, 
that it's antisocial in its fundamental form, that it will dehumanize the people in my life, then I have to say this. Oh, this is so hard to say, but this is the portal to liberation. Here it is. I am my greatest relational problem. It's me. Now, now don't misunderstand me. I know that you'll be sinned against. I know that people suffer abusive things. But my greatest, long-term, deepest difficulty in relationships actually exists inside of me and not outside of me. I don't believe we believe that. If I'm doing marriage counseling and I ask the husband what, what he thinks is wrong with his marriage, who do you think he's going to talk about? He's not going to talk about himself. And if I ask the wife the same question, guess who she's going to talk about? Now, at that point, as a counselor, I'm out of a job. Because there's no seekers in the room. Husband's just there to get his wife fixed. The wife's just there to get her husband fixed. Nobody wants what I have to offer. And that's why here the cure. Paul says, Jesus came for this focused and distinct purpose. Here I'm about to say, to rescue you from you. In his grace alone were rescued from us. That grace changes the whole paradigm. It changes the whole lifestyle. That grace is meant not just to be give you future hope or past hope, wonderful past hope, wonderful future hope, but to greet you in your struggle in the here and now. That grace liberates you from you so you can actually have a thing that could be described as a relationship. Listen, I think we live in unrelational, non-relational relationships. We've all been in conflict before, haven't we? Maybe over direction. <laughs> uh, maybe over something uh, much more significant than that. But have you ever thought about conflict in that, in that context? That the actual problem is not going this way or going that way, or who's right or who's wrong. The actual problem um, lies within, within our own hearts. Uh, did you hear what he said about the DNA of sin? What did he say the DNA of sin was? Selfishness. Selfishness. Um, what did Satan uh, uh, say? We talk about his sin being pride, but he said, I want to ascend above the Most High. I'm going to set my throne above God. Self-exaltation. Um, disobedience. Doing what God has has commanded us not to do, failing to do what God has commanded us to do. Why do we do that? Um, because it comes back to self. We we believe that uh, that we're the most important person in the universe, right? I mean, we we just naturally think that way. We evaluate everything. Um, it's tainted by sin through a through a self. Selfish grid, a selfish perspective. Um, 
do what what do I get out of church? Do I like this Sunday school class? Do I like the music? I don't know if I want to come this Sunday night because this guy's speaking rather than than this other guy, and I like the other guy better than the first guy. I, I, I don't understand why everybody's going slow this morning. Do they not realize that I am late for work? Um, you, you bite and devour your wife or your children, and, and, and what natural, you know that's wrong. You know that you don't want to, to hurt them, you, but, but what's really going on in your heart when you're arguing? You're justifying. Well, I mean, don't they understand that, that I had a bad day last night when you come home from, from work and, and some, somebody, your wife meets you at the door or somebody else does and they want something from you immediately? The, the natural reaction of your, your flesh is, is uh, just give me a few minutes. I just can't. Don't you realize what kind of hard day that I've had and now you want something? And, and the list could go on and on and on. And all of that comes from, from a a self a heart that's 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 bent on bent on self and the first thing that god does in in salvation is he is he shows us that uh, and it's a very very ugly ugly portrait um, but then in salvation he takes self off the throne um, and he gets on the throne and then we spend the rest of our Christian life, Clay's been teaching him about sanctification, we spend the rest of our life trying to climb back in the throne and kick God out and, and sit there ourselves. And that's the battle that, that goes on. We'll play that out in, uh, in close relationships. It doesn't just have to be marriage. It could be close relationships in a church or um, parent-child or, or friendship. Or Wherever two sinners are in close proximity and they, they, they remain there, they become familiar with one another and familiar with one another's sins, then, then this really, really you know, comes out. One of the ways that you, that you know for sure that you can, that, that the, the, the statement, uh, they made me mad, is a lie. One of the ways that you know that for sure is, is you can control yourself whenever you're typically in a public setting. Like you'll let your your kids or your wife or whoever have it behind closed doors, people that that already know you. But then, but you know, you're arguing left and right in the van on the way to the church, and when you pull in the parking lot, you smile. You don't yell at them in front of everybody else. Well, why? Because you don't want everybody to know, but you'll 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 let them have it. So you're able to control yourself around people that you don't want to look bad in front of. And that's evidence that you can actually control your, your anger. When you put two sinners in close proximity, selfishness comes out in, a, in, in, in massive ways. And then you put two people that are selfish, uh, selfish husband, selfish wife, and then just it grinds and grinds and grinds. And, and even as Paul said, you might find yourself needing, needing help in a Galatians 6.1 category you need restored um but the problem is whenever we realize you know wow the sparks have been flying where it's gotten down to the bone there's no relational cartilage there and it it hurts every time that you you come in contact with one another so yes yeah, so we need help but when you go for help who, who do you end up thinking most about is the problem who who do you <laughs> who do you tell the counselor about you tell the counselor about your spouse you don't tell the counselor about about self. Well, God has created us um, 
to be unified. How do you deal with that reality? The DNA of of sin is is selfishness. God's created unity in us by the by the Spirit. We as men, women are not immune to this, but we're the initiators. We're to preserve, protect, and guard that unity, not create disunity because of our selfishness. It doesn't matter how many years you've botched those things. You can repair, renew, and grow. But if a person is not willing to do that after years of destroying those things, it's only a commentary, it's only evidence on why those things are destroyed. And that may be because of an unwillingness to admit stubbornness, or it may be that you just don't want to admit that you have a hardened idolatry of self. It is possible to get to the place that you're so hardened about a reality um, that even preaching about it, even reading about it, even when God makes you aware of it, it doesn't it doesn't affect you. It hits and then it bounces off. Um, and that's a very, very scary place to be in. And so what does God do in those moments? He's gracious to you. If he is, if you're his, he'll bring suffering in order to soften the ground. And that suffering softens the ground so you'll then receive the truth so he can actually purge you of, of the issue, which is selfishness. Well, we're going to look at Romans 12, 13 through 18. So I want somebody to open to that. You can all open there. I'm going to ask somebody to read it. These are probably familiar passages. Romans 12, 13 through 18, and Colossians 3, 15. Both of those are the passages that we'll launch with this morning. Romans 12, 13 through 18. Somebody want to read that for me? Thank you, Mark. In Colossians 3.15. Somebody want to read that for me? All right. Nathan? Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. All right. Romans 12.18 tells us, Be at peace with people who are nice to me. Is that what it says? Be at peace with believers. No. Be at peace with all men. All mankind. Men and women. Be at peace with all men. And Colossians 3.15 tells us, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And you need Colossians 3.15 because when you read Romans 12.18, be at peace with all men, you immediately go, everybody? Even that guy at work that's an absolute jerk? Even whoever, fill in the blank, yes, all. So how do you do that? Because that's not natural. And 
You have to let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. You have to put both of those two things together. In Colossians 3.15, we preached this passage. You could go back and find the lessons, the sermons on Colossians, if you want more on this. Colossians 3.15 tells us, let the peace of Christ rule or arbitrate or act like a judge. The only way you're going to be successful to bring peace between two people whose DNA is, is selfishness is Christ has to be the, the arbitrator. He has to be the, he has to be the judge. Sometimes that word is used for an official who acted as an umpire. Everybody kind of knows what an umpire is, calling balls and, and strikes. The peace of Christ is referee over our, over our conflicts within the church and within the family. And that's the only way that you will be at peace with all men. You let Christ reign in your, in your heart. And you let him uh, tell your heart what to do whenever, whenever, there's a, whenever there's a fastball that you're not anticipating, <laughs> whenever there's a curveball that, that you swing at and miss, or whenever you get hit by the pitch. And sometimes people throw right at you, right? Sometimes at your head. And you need Christ to be able to, to call that. So we don't naturally do that. Um, we, uh, we look to others and blame them. And what Tripp reminded us, the reason I started with it, is he tells us it's not her fault, it's you. It's not their fault, it's, it's, it's you. Um, look at... The first way we try to solve relational problems by unbiblical means. So, okay, I acknowledge I'm selfish. I acknowledge there's conflict, and I acknowledge that 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 the Bible says I'm I'm to I'm to focus on myself, not the the other the other person. But but actually, I don't like conflict. I actually try to resolve it at, at times, um, and it still doesn't work. Well, there's some ways that we try to solve relational issues. Relational, two people, multiple people. We do that by unbiblical means. And you list three of them here, and they'll be very familiar to you because you've all done them. You probably have done them in the last week, possibly. The first one is manipulation. How do you try to solve conflict or relational issue um, in an unbiblical way, a way that doesn't fix it? Well, the first thing that we, we typically do is manipulation. This is the deceptive tactic that seeks to avoid the perspective of, of others. Um, it's a deception, whatever means you might, you might use. And the key there is avoid the perspective of others. You manipulate. And you avoid the perspective of others. Of, of others. Maybe, maybe you don't want to deal with their perspective. Maybe you don't know how to deal with their perspective. Um, maybe you just dismiss it altogether. I mean, what does, what does my wife really know about whatever? And in a relationship, there are two parties um, or multiple parties if there's, if there's more than the two. Let's just talk about a two-party relationship. In a relationship, there are two parties. And in that conversation, there's, there are two perspectives. And selfishness comes out, that, and, and, and maybe in subtle ways, and says, my perspective 
is more important than their perspective. And sometimes with a wife, you, you say, it's so, my perspective is so important, I don't even really need to listen to her perspective because I've already evaluated that my perspective is right. Um, and that's a deceptive, a deceptive tactic. Just because you're the man or the parent or the whatever doesn't make you superior. You, you might have a greater level of experience or giftedness. But relationship, they're two, they're two parties to a conversation. So you can manipulate through withholding information. Well, I don't really need to, to go into all of that um, because obviously I'm right. Um, manipulation, shading information in, uh, in your favor, maybe blatantly lying or, or exaggerating. Um, the second one, intimidation. Instead of solving conflicts that are going to come, we'll talk about that in a minute. You cannot live. It's impossible to live in a conflict-free home. Instead of solving conflicts, we, we just shout someone down or we dominate by our presence. He who shouts the loudest wins the argument. You know, that bumper sticker, he who has the most toys at the end or whatever it is, you know, wins the game of, of life, however it goes. It's, it's a stupid bumper sticker. I'm glad I don't remember it. Instead of solving conflicts, you, you just shout the other person down. You start to lose. They give you information you haven't thought about. They throw you a, a curveball. Maybe it seems like they're about to win. And so what do you do? You just, you just elevate. We're just going to stop talking about this right now. Or however it goes. Or you dominate by your presence. You intimidate them. And that shuts them down and, and keeps the, the actual resolving of conflict. So you may bring momentary uh, ceasing to the, to the conflict, to the argument, to the biting and devouring, but you won't solve the problem. It's an unbiblical way. And what's worse is the longer that we do that in a relationship, you can actually become comfortable by being aggressive in the relationship. You'll start to solve all of the, the issues this way. Um, or uh, the, the wife or the, the, the child or the coworker, whoever, will just stop coming to you. Won't bring you anything because they know exactly what they're going to get whenever they, they bring it. They're going to get uh, not listened to and then you're going to elevate or you're going to dominate the situation. So why even deal with it? Bible says don't exasperate your your children. Well, look at the, the other one. Isolation. Here's another one. You will do uh, one of these 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 last two more than, than the other. You'll you'll use intimidation or isolation. You will either escalate or you'll withdraw. Isolation is the withdrawal. This is the the pursuit of relational distance. Commonly, this manifests itself in silence. Um, this is what you do when, when you want to pay the other person back for 
not treating you with the respect that you deserve or giving you a hard time or whatever it it might be, not serving you in some way because the root issue is is self. And what you're doing, withdrawing or or isolating this this tactic sees to seeks to pay people by by giving them cold indifference. I will punish you for for your failing to to serve me in the way that I think that I, I should be served in this conflict or this relationship. I'll just shut down. Just stop talking about it. And sometimes that can last the afternoon. Sometimes that can last for days. Um, you give somebody the, the cold shoulder. What are some evidences that you're trying to solve relational issues by unbiblical means? Can you see these three operating? Manipulation, intimidation, and isolation. And maybe as you're sitting there reading it, the natural thought that comes to your mind, yeah, totally, I can see my wife, she isolates me whenever we get in an argument, right? And we're just proving the point. What are some evidences that you try to resolve relational issues by unbiblical means? What's the fruit of doing this over and over and and not learning what the Bible says about being a peacemaker and not letting the, the peace of Christ referee in your hearts. Well, the results you produce are, are false. That's what I was talking about. You can actually bring a ceasing to the, to the, to the, to the argument, but, but the conflict itself doesn't cease. It doesn't fix the, the problem. The results that you produce by your methods are, are false. Someone submits or someone forgets. Someone submits. They, they just go along to get along. You're just so argumentative, you, you won't listen. They just finally just submit. Okay, whatever you want. And, you know, and they may not say it, but that's what's going on in their heart. Or they, they forget. They say, well, we, just can't, we can't solve this. Let's move on. And the issue was never solved. Or the issue is. Issues that are never solved. The conflict that is not solved, it's not dealt with biblically, is not solved. <laughs> it will come up again. And probably will will return with a with a vengeance. I mean, you could come to a number of different analogies. Have you ever been sick? Maybe had strep throat, and the doctor gave you, you know, ten days of of antibiotics. And after the third day, second day, you started feeling better. The third day, you you missed a dose. And the fourth day, you said, "Man, I don't. I mean, I'm feeling pretty good. I really don't need these antibiotics." You got off of them, and then. On day seven or eight, the, the strep throat comes back with a vengeance because you didn't finish your course of antibiotics. Whatever conflict is going on, if you try to solve that in an unbiblical way, there, there, may be, there may be peace on top of the water. The top of the water may be smooth, but I can promise you in the heart it is churning. What are some evidences that we've used unbiblical means? Well, the results are false. It's weakening you and making making you atrophy over over time. What is what comes to your mind? What does atrophy mean? Okay, wasting away. What happens before it wastes away? Huh? It gets weak. You stop using it. You know, if I if I would just stop using my 
my arm, never use it again. You know, the muscles would waste away, joints would get stiff, and like Peter said, you wouldn't be able to to use it. That can happen. The strength of the bond in a relationship loosens. Look at C. Your marriage will have little relational harmony. What is relational harmony? Um, when I think of that, I don't think it's natural for for men to wake up in the morning and say, "Wow, I, I desire relational harmony with my wife today." Right? What does this What does this mean? It will have little relational harmony. You can tell this. You can tell that you don't have relational harmony. Two of you work together, work well together. You can you can tell this when you when you need others or events to enjoy one another's company. Um, Tracy and I met we were sixteen, long before cell phones. So we used to have a landline phone. We went to different high schools, and. Um, she would call me in the morning before she went to school. I talked to her before we before we went to school, and then as soon as she got out of school, she would call me. And I greatly enjoyed spending time with her. And you asked us, "What did we talk about at six o'clock in the morning and at three o'clock in the day?" I have no idea. I really didn't care. I don't care what we're talking about. I just want to talk to her. Your marriage will have little relational harmony. Whenever you think about your relationship with your with your wife or whoever we're we're talking about, can you actually enjoy just them? It doesn't matter what topic you're talking about, can you enjoy them? If you can't, if you need the kids or friends or 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 an event, you you go to a game together, you go out to eat together in order. To, to bring the two of you together, you're, you're, the harmony is, is around the other people. It's around the meal. It's, it's not with, with the two of, of you. When was the last time that you just talked? You spent time alone in one another's presence. If you're doing this wrong over and over, you'll have little relational harmony. You won't enjoy one another's company. Look at D. There will be very little real peace when you aren't actually dealing with the conflict. These are all evidences that you've handled conflict wrongly. This is the fruit, bad fruit, bitter fruit. There will be very little real peace when you aren't actually dealing with the conflict. I mean, it'll get to the point where it's You'll lack real peace even when you're not arguing about something. There's just a constant friction there. You can tell something's something's not right. And later in life, you might say we just we just grew apart. You didn't grow apart. You walked apart. You separated yourself because God put you together, and He put two sinners together. And those two sinners in close proximity with one another are going to bring sparks because you're two unperfected or imperfected sinners. Uh, 
So it's not about sparks not flying. But you have to apply biblical means to deal with those sparks or or you're going to end up trying to handle it in unbiblical means and then have very, very bitter fruit and then you're going to conclude that you just grew apart when actually you didn't handle it God's way. Now, why do you think this lesson starts with an encouragement? It doesn't matter how many years you've botched those things. You can repair, renew, and grow. You think it starts with that? Because every single person does all of these things that's here. <laughs> and, and it's convicting. And yet there's hope in Christ. Um, it doesn't matter how poorly you've done, how, how long that you've done it the wrong way. What fruit is there? God can, can work. So, so how does God start that work? Well, look at three here. You must go back and think through and confess. Hmm, Clay talked about that two Sunday nights ago, the importance of confession. To confess doesn't mean that you you say, well, everything we've ever argued about, you've been totally right and I've been totally wrong. That's not what you're confessing. You're saying the same thing about the way you handled the conflict as as God. You're saying the same thing about yourself. I, I don't even want to. I don't want to deal right now with 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 who's right or who's wrong in this situation. I mean, we we can talk about that. But what I need to ask your forgiveness for is. I am a selfish person, and I just responded to you in a very selfish, selfish way, and um, just want to need to confess that to you and ask you to, you know, to forgive me. You want to de-escalate a conflict? Try asking for forgiveness. Try confessing in the middle of the, of the conflict. Um, it takes the takes the air right out of it. Then you let the Lord become the new umpire of your conflicts, your difficulties, in both your heart and in your relationships. Now, how do you do that? How do you let the Lord become the umpire? Well, do baseball players, we use that uh, an analogy, do they always like the, the call the umpire makes, the pitch? Does he always agree with the umpire? Is the umpire always right? <laughs> well, in the sense that if he's the one who makes the rules, right? I mean, you, you fight with the umpire, what happens to you? You're out of here. Well, we don't have an imperfect umpire who, who, who didn't see that it was a ball when he actually called it a strike. We have God. They were submitting to his authority. That's what this idea is. Yeah, the Lord has to become that in your heart and in your relationships. You have to submit to Him and let Him work it out in His timing. And it may be in the midst of that conflict, you're not going to win. <laughs> but you're going to trust God that He's going he's to win in the long run. You say, how do I do that? Well, you submit to God and you, you love others more than yourself. Go number three here. At the heart... This whole issue are two basic idolatries. It's a strong word, isn't it? 
It's an idol. So it's not just your your you need a little tweaking. I'm just kind of this way. This is an idol. This is a challenge against God when you're not this way. You're worshiping a false god. And that false god is self. And it's trying to dethrone the Lord. We might believe the lie that God is not sovereign. And instead of trusting in the sovereign work of God and trusting him to bring about a biblical solution, that's when we take matters into our own hands. It takes wisdom. I mean, the two extremes there are we're just, you know, the, the let go and let God. I'm not going to engage in conflict. I'm not even going to argue. I'm not going to fight back because God's just going to fix it. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, as you engage it in a biblical way, there may not be an immediate solution. And you then submit your heart to God rather than take it into your own, your own hands. God is just as concerned, God is more concerned about your wife's sanctification than you are. And he's more concerned about your sanctification than you are. And he may be bringing or allowing the conflict in order to sanctify both of you. And if you, you, you try to squish around that, you're going to take, by taking matters in your own hands, you're going, to, you're going to short circuit that. You say, what do I do? I mean, it's something I can't resolve or something that's too big for me. You go to God. You appeal to him. You trust you say, Lord, you're sovereign, even over my wife. Um, I'm going to follow a biblical solution for this matter, no matter what it looks like. Look at the second one. We might think that superficial unity is sufficient. This idolatry takes comfort in the lie that we can be content with fake unity. Obedience demands that we strive for actual biblical love that denies self. And superficial unity is not biblical love. It's human, manufactured, self-centered, self-preserving peace. It's, it's always temporary. It never lasts. It gives people a false sense of peace and Christ is is not involved in it at all. And in the end, it dishonors Christ and never promotes the, the gospel. This is avoidance. Not actually dealing with the issues in your own heart or, or maybe even what you're, what you're having conflict over. We are called as Christians to the opposite of this. We are called to engage conflict. Do you like conflict? Well, if I win, maybe. Um, most of us like conflict from this angle. We, we enjoy, um, how do I say it? We enjoy looking good in the battle. But we typically don't enjoy the face-to-face -face aspect of it. 
Why do people find it a whole lot easier to blast somebody on social media or to send an email than to sit across the table with them and, you know, and, and converse? You may enjoy that kind of conflict because there's, you think there, there's, there's less consequences. Well, the person can't get to you. They can't punch you in the face. But it's a, it's a counterfeit way. But we're called to engage in conflict. But we're, we're called to do that in such a way that Christ becomes honored through the difficulty. You will not go through any relationship without conflict. In fact, there will be times that God will call you to create conflict. You say, what? Romans just said I'm to be a peacemaker. Well, you may have to deal with an issue, and that issue may bring about conflict. You may have to lance a boil in order to actually heal the skin. And on the other side of it, when we have to do that, we learn to endure and become selfless. What do I mean by that? You say, well, does this mean that I'm just always agreeable? Or that we never fight? No, that's not what it means at all. Look at four. There's a difference between conflict and disagreement. Normal, natural disagreement doesn't involve sin. Is it possible? I mean, you say, does this mean that, you know, my wife and I just have to be uh, in perfect harmony, in a sense, on everything, like we think exactly alike? No. In fact, that's not what's going to happen. You're supposed to complement one another. And the complimenting means that she's different from you. She has different abilities, different perspectives, different everything. And that's a good thing, but that's also usually where the conflict comes from. Conflict occurs when sin enters into the disagreement. A disagreement may not involve sin, and that's good. It's okay. It's normal. It's natural. But conflict... Whenever it occurs, sin enters into that disagreement. Conflict can be avoided, whereas disagreement cannot. Let me turn to James 4, 1 through 4, and read that for me. And I'll turn there. James just gives us an unvarnished diagnosis. Conflict can be avoided, whereas disagreement cannot. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures, your desires, your lusts that wage war in your members? You want, you lust. You desire, you want, and you do not have. So you commit murder. You're envious, and you cannot obtain. So you fight and quarrel. And you do not have because you do not ask. Will God withhold good things from you? No. You ask and you do not receive because you ask for the wrong motives so that you spend it on your pleasure. You don't ask God for it. Take it in your own hands. And if you do ask God for it, 
and it's good, he'll give it to you. If it's not good, he won't. How do we know it's not good? Because we're not asking for righteous reasons. We just we want we want peace at all costs. We want whatever. And this goes back to our rights, my rights, my agenda. All conflict will involve that in both of those in, in one way. I have a right to whatever I'm thinking right now. I have this right. I have this right to peace whenever I come in from work. I have this right for a wife, my wife to be submissive to me and not talk to me that way. I have this right. I'm the man. I'm the, I'm the dad. You shouldn't be that way toward me. I have this right, whatever it is. And that other person, and you think, is trying to deprive you of that right. And how dare you deprive me of that right. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you know. I'm going to fight you over that. Or, a, or an agenda. I have a desire. Something that I want. I am looking forward to something. Um, I have an agenda that I want to accomplish, and you're getting in the way of that agenda. And where does James say the, the, the problem lies? What's the source? It's not the other person not doing what you want. It's in here. As Tripp was saying, the greatest problem is itself. Um, and we're all right here in the same in the same boat. Conflict can be avoided where disagreement cannot avoid. You say, how can I avoid that? Some people actually believe that you can live in relationships without disagreements. And yet disagreements are part of life because we're finite, we're weak, we're limited, we're earthly. And disagreements should be expected. And they don't have to turn into sinful Conflicts. Christians can have a right attitude. They can avoid sinful idolatries that move us into this war. Notice what James says. Is not the source of your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lusted and you do not have, so you commit murder. You don't deal with the issue. You take the other person out in whatever way. In some of those unbiblical ways we already talked about. But the disagreement that may started that is not sinful in and of itself. How we responded to it can be the sinful part. Causes, what are some causes of strong disagreements? Give me a little bit more, Brian. Causes of strong disagreements are not necessarily sinful. What, what are those? Disagreements, these are not sinful. Legitimate disagreements. If I see things this way, you see things that way. They can be worldview, response to circumstances, view of money, maturity. What are some disagreements that are not sinful in and of themselves? Give me some of this, some in this list. Give me some of worldview. I think of traditions. Okay. Um, my wife's from India and they celebrate. Christmas very different than we do here. It's excellent. So it's, it's very biblical to have a Christmas tree in my family. Yes. <laughs> and uh, it, she didn't have one. Yeah. So we had to work that out. Um, that's definitely a disagreement. Yeah. It's good. It's excellent. Worldview. What else? Yeah. Politics. Okay. Politics. In what way? Why would you vote for him? Why would you vote for her? Yeah. Yeah. 
So uh, put that in in a realm that I mean, there are certain things, abortion, killing of, of a baby, things that the Bible clearly speaks on in the areas of politics that we're not talking about there. But let's say an economic approach. Should we raise the property tax in Bedford County to pay more for public schools? Well, people have really strong opinions about that. They can disagree about that. But that's not a sin issue. Um, and so you can have a disagreement. And that disagreement can turn very sinful, can it? <laughs> Response to circumstances, view of money. Um, there are certain things about money, the way that you apply that, that may not be sinful. You may have a legitimate disagreement. Um, your wife may want to spend more than you want her to spend, or you may want to spend more than she thinks that you should spend. That's not a sinful disagreement. You just have to have a conversation about that, and that conversation can turn into conflict if sin can enter in it, if you don't do it in the right way. Um, did sin occur between Paul and Barnabas when they split over John Mark, Acts 15? There's a biblical example of a disagreement where sin wasn't involved. This is painful. If you can't resolve a disagreement, it's painful and it also exposes your heart. I can remember one of the first situations when I was in ministry that I had two genuine believers, myself and another man. And to this day, I look back on that, and I think that we were both godly men in this scenario and we both genuinely tried to resolve a difference of opinion actually a, a way of viewing an application of the Bible that was pretty significant but the text wasn't like crystal clear on it I mean you could legitimately take either one of these positions and not deny the Bible I took one, he took the other, and we spent probably a year and a half, not every day, but on and off again, working through this. And in the end, I was unmoved and, and he was unmoved, and we parted ways. And to this day, I think he's a godly man. And I think that he genuinely tried to see my perspective. I genuinely, I know, tried to see his, and in the end, we parted. And I have to say, I was grieved over that. I did not like that. And one of the things I had to admit was the reason that I was grieved is I had never had a Christian situation that I couldn't resolve by force of personality or actually going to the person and saying, let me really understand what you're trying to, to, to say. And been able to, 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 to either see their point of view and kind of move toward them or them see my point of view and move toward me and build some common ground and say, okay, yeah, now we, we've agreed on this. It was the first time that I can remember that I ever came to the point where where it was I hadn't moved and he hadn't moved and and I did not conclude he was a he was an ungodly person. I mean, that's one of the ways that you, you get out of that conflict. You you conclude, well, they're they just don't they don't have good hermeneutics, right? You know. Yeah, they were brought up in a bad church. I mean, you 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 try to excuse the reason that you can't bring peace in the situation when what you're really doing is I'm right and they're wrong, and 
I'm going to justify in my mind why they're wrong. So it can, can expose you. Do you really care about the other person? Um, or is it come back to self again? Paul and Barnabas split over John Mark. It doesn't seem that either one of them have any sense in which they knew they were sinning. They didn't divide the church. It wasn't as though everyone knew that an apostle and his sidekick were somehow sinning against one another. There's none of that. There's no evidence of that in the Bible. There are sharp disagreements over philosophy of ministry and men parting. But they are not for one another. If you're really parting over things you disagree strongly about, but there is no sin involved, the only thing you can say is, I still sharply disagree with what you're saying and the reasons behind it. I don't think it will be effective. I think it even might be hurtful, but I support you. I'm absolutely thrilled for your friendship and ministry relationship because you are a faithful God. Now, that is really hard to, in the heart, come to that conclusion whenever there is a disagreement. Because if there's a disagreement, you obviously believe and you're passionate about whatever that tradition is or whatever it it might be. Um, you may have not thought of it this way, that there are actually benefits of disagreement. The benefits of disagreeing. Well, I think Clay kind of went at this on Sunday night. What your point about when people sin against you in the church? What are the benefits? Benefits from people sinning against me? God actually has a purpose? Yeah, he does. Does he cause the sin? No. But he forces even the events of sin to obey his purposes for you in your life. What are some benefits of disagreement? Well, you get to rethink your underdeveloped perspective. Proverbs twenty-seven seventeen. Is that iron sharpens iron? Is that what Proverbs twenty-seven seventeen is? You get to rethink your under underdeveloped perspective. I can remember walking into seminary for the first time, and I had never, ever, ever, ever heard of anybody who did not believe in a premillennial return of Christ. And I meet a guy there who doesn't even believe in the rapture. What do you mean you don't believe in the rapture? And he says, well, I don't, I don't believe in, in that or premillennials because Matthew 24 when Jesus says this, and he starts quoting Bible verses to me, and I'm thinking, man, I, I'm not saying this out loud, but I'm thinking, that sounds pretty good. <laughs> that kind of makes sense. I never... I had never thought it through. I mean, that's what my pastor taught. He showed it to me in the Bible. I never questioned it. And so it sent me on a on a quest to figure out, okay, what does that passage mean? He says it means this. I believe it means that. What does it actually mean? And in the end of that process, I concluded premillennialism is exactly what the Bible teaches. And that disagreement allowed me to rethink my underdeveloped perspective. I never thought about that. Now, is that guy a brother? Is he a believer? Because he's post-mill or all men? Absolutely he is. 
He's just very wrong about the kingdom, and Jesus will show him that one day. But I love him. It gave me an opportunity to rethink my underdeveloped perspective. You get to trust God at a new level. One of the problems about being fat, dumb, and happy, as they say, is you basically live life where you don't sense your need of God. What's the deceitfulness of riches? Is money bad? Money's not bad. It's a tool. Love of it's bad. But why does the Bible warn us about it? Because it can insulate us from needing, this feeling, a sense of need for for God. And disagreement forces you to trust God, especially when it can't be resolved. You're exposed to your own sinfulness. You get in a disagreement, your heart manifests. And you can see your heart. Wow. I don't like to be challenged. And when I'm challenged, I want to hurt the other person. I want to put them down. I want to put them in their place. You get to see your sin. Your sin gets put on on display. You get to search the scriptures. Yeah, maybe it's another example. You can think of an example when you were in a disagreement that hadn't turned sinful. Maybe it did. And you were forced to search the scriptures. You know what the authority is. You go back to it. It's a benefit. I walked away from that disagreement with that other Christian brother knowing way more about the topic and way more about what the Bible taught about um, than I did before before it happened. What are the benefits when a disagreement comes? You get to pray for understanding. Prayer is a privilege. Drives you to prayer. Can't be resolved. You see how God benefits our sanctification by allowing these things to come into our lives? Um, there's different aspects of prayer. Give God thanks. You give God praise. You ask God for things, supplications. But when you're anxious for something, when you desire something that's legit, and you can't get it, you pray with a different fervor and passion, don't you? you cry out to God. You're forced to communicate more effectively. I can't believe you're that dumb. You can't, I mean, you can't even understand what I'm saying to you. Hopefully you haven't said that like I have. You know, the problem may be you're not communicating well. The issue may be the sender, not the receiver. Forces you to figure out how to communicate more effectively. I just don't understand what you're saying, honey. It's not that I'm trying to, you know, rise up against you. I just don't understand. Well, I don't know how to make you understand. Well, that forces you to figure out how to help her understand. Forces you to communicate more effectively. And I think this is probably the most important. You get an opportunity to die to self. You get an opportunity to kill sin. Um, because if you don't die to self, it's, it's going to take over 
you and your relationships and your life, and it's going to bring devastating consequences. Quarrels put in us hostility with God in the James 4 sense. Two people are sinful and fighting for what they want, or one person is seeking, uh, speaking biblically, and the other is fighting for, for what they want. God's pleasure is what we must desire. What does God want from this circumstance? We must lay down our own desires. God wants to control our desires. He wants control of them. He wants to umpire. Look at seven. In disagreements, we must speak the truth in love. This goes back to one of the ways that we... We manipulate um, deceptive tactic, avoiding the perspective of others, withholding information, shading information, blatantly lying. You must lay aside all, all falsehood and speak truth. Speak truth without exaggeration. It's not easy to slip into sin when you're standing on truth. Now you speak the truth. In love, there's the truth part, the love part. It's loving to speak the truth. And there's a proper way to do that. Don't get angry. Because if you're personally offended, you will sin. We can hate the things that God hates, but His pure and His pure and completely righteous anger is not possible for us. The sin of anger, which we're going to talk about in detail pretty soon, is a destructive element that creates fear in families. How do you know whether you're sinfully angry? If you're personally offended, it's not righteous anger. I am personally offended. Being upset, being offended for God is different. You must work toward forgiveness if you're personally offended. If you get personally offended in an argument, that is a that is the place where you stop and you you evaluate, you seek their forgiveness because it's going to go downhill from there. Our speech should be wholesome. Without qualification, it builds the other person up. It's sensitive to the range of needs of the other person. No, I don't want to talk about this now. They may not want to talk about it right now. Being hurtful in speech is always sin, no matter what is said to us. Well, I said that to you because you said that to me. If personally offended, there's no option but to forgive. And you say, how in the world do I do that? Jesus Christ. It's the only way you can do that. And even with Jesus Christ, you'll not do it um, perfectly, which is why you confess and why you ask forgiveness. But not having Jesus Christ and not doing it His way whenever conflict does manifest sinfully will bring all those consequences that He started with. And what he started with was an encouragement that if you've done this over and over and there are consequences there, it's never too late to fix it. If you're no good at any of this, then here's what I would suggest to you. 
which is all of us, all right? Guarding against falling into sin when disagreement. I would memorize these verses. Because this is what will defuse. This is what, think of each of these as a dagger in the heart of self. Self that wants to climb up on the throne and tear Christ down. You memorize these verses, then you'll have the daggers to, to preach to yourself, to, to stick self in the, in the side when, when it starts trying to climb up in the throne. Romans 12, 16. Keep in mind that I am never better than the other person. Galatians 6, 1. Take heed of your own heart. Even if you are having to enter into conflict and restore someone... You do that in meekness, gentleness, considering yourself, right? Mark ten eighteen. God is the standard, not me. First Timothy one fifteen, this is super helpful. Be humble as the worst sinner in the room in the conflict. The Apostle Paul, at the end, close to the end of his life. Psalm 86. Pray for the Lord to be patient with your brother and you. And remember, even in the midst of it, in the throes of it, in the pain of it, in the, the lack of reconciliation in it, remember God is sovereign. And he's allowing this circumstance for you. He's doing that in order to, to teach and form, form Christ. Do not judge so that you'll not be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your own standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye and not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye and behold, the log is in your own eye. You're called to help those other brothers, other sisters, your wife, whoever it is you're in a relationship. You're called to take biblical tweezers and help them get the splinter out. Not, this is not saying don't engage in conflict and let be whatever. People can live however they That's not what this is saying. This is saying in order to do that, you have to look at yourself first. And um, so then you can. Selfless rather than selfish. So let me recommend something to you uh, besides memorizing this. Lou Priolo has a little booklet. Men don't like big books. This is 30 pages. Um, not very much else. It's called Resources for Biblical Living on Selfishness. Um, and so that's out there in the bookstore. I don't know what it is. $5 or something like that. Um, so anyway. I don't know about you. This one's, this one's convicting. It really is. And it is because... This is really uh, this is really where we live. So, um, 
You pray for me and I'll pray for you as we try to live this out. Let me pray for us as we launch into the day. Father, we thank you. Thank you for telling us the truth. Um, Thank you for a Bible that doesn't gloss over things, pretend that sin doesn't exist. Thank you also for the remedy. Christ, um, he's our only hope in this. And we'll battle this until we see you face to face, but help us to battle with biblical means, um, the tools that you've given us. Um, Lord, my mind goes to the passage that calls us to to be humble. If I would start anywhere, Lord, it would be there. Um, help us to be humble men, because then you you grant grace to the humble. Um, help us to be servants today and wherever we go. Bless my brothers. Thank you for them. In Jesus' name.